from 1 Samuel 24, 1 to 22. Um, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into the hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his man, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the King, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, and my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, and I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord.
Let's pray. Father, send your Holy Spirit. As we've opened the Scriptures, I pray that your Scripture would open our hearts, that we'd be able to hear what you're saying to each of us. Lord, I pray that you'd stir faith and courage tonight, as we've already been praying, that you would warm our hearts, you would compel us, and that you would send us in the power of your Son, Jesus. Amen. What are you waiting for? Christmas. Anything else? Advent calendars. Advent calendars. We haven't brought one. No. Mm. <laughs> I'm not naturally given to patience. I'm not a good waiter. The, the worst time for me in waiting was actually when Lulu and I broke up. But a happy ending, so you can, we can sort of talk about this now. And soon after we broke up, I decided that really it was a terrible idea and we should get back together. Um, so I kept texting Lulu and writing really cheesy letters to her. And I think Lulu was maybe aware that we might get back together, but certainly wasn't there yet and just wanted space. And I couldn't really handle it. And eventually Lulu said, just give me time and space. And it was a month, right? I want a month, just no contact. I couldn't hack it. I remember just uncontrollably hitting the shower wall went, like literally like a toddler hitting this like wall of a shower, just frustrated. I couldn't deal with, with the lack of any agency or control in the situation, just waiting, not being able to do anything. We wait differently depending on what the thing was. The, the thing is that we're waiting for. You think about the confidence and the certainty of a goalkeeper. They know at the penalty moment that the penalty ball is coming to them and they're going to have to do something. A surfer waits confidently that the wave will one day come. We wait unconfidently for the weather to get better. <laughs> Maybe it will stop raining. I'll be late for my meeting because I don't really want to get a damp bum from cycling the rain. But you don't really expect the rain to stop. We're waiting unconfidently for a letter from the NHS. We're waiting unconfidently for things that we just don't think really will happen, but we're waiting. And then we wait urgently for the bus when you're running late. <laughs> or the moment where we all universally have probably waited the most urgently in a queue for the loo. <laughs> I actually got it wrong. I, I saved myself an embarrassment, but got close this week in Victoria Park Village when there was a couple of loos I tried to go to that weren't uh, actually open, and then I took a phone call and then the one that was actually open, there was a queue for, and I was thinking, this, this is a close call. And I was at the door, and I was waiting, I was knocking, and it was a happy ending again, like the, you know, Lulu and I, it wasn't a bad story, but the, the urgency, depending on what you're waiting for, and your expectations in that process, affects how you wait. And in the season of Advent, we are, we are waiting. We hold intention two things in Advent. Jesus' first coming, as a baby, Jesus. Something that has happened, but also we wait for Jesus to return, something that has not yet happened. One writer said, Advent is when the remembered joy of Christ's first arrival awakens the anticipated joy of his second arrival. We look back in faith at what God has done when he arrived as Mary's boy, and it awakens joy in us. And, and we look around at the world as it is and say that this cannot be the end of the story. 
And because of what you have done, God, awaken joy in me to anticipate that you will return and make all things new. We hold both those in intention, which again is a bit of a dizzying mix with what everyone else is doing at this time. But it's a moment to step away and to think about the big picture, the really big picture of life, the universe and everything, where this world is going, how we hope that Jesus will return and set things new, and how our confident waiting is awakened by a remembering of the first coming, the good news that that all for the Old Testament, they waited and waited and waited, and then Jesus arrived. Today is all about waiting. And the environment of wilderness, which is a picture for us. Wilderness is in the wild place, is a picture from the Bible, and that is the environment of waiting. So tonight we're looking at how waiting formed in the wilderness is transformative. See, what you choose in the waiting really matters. What happens in the wilderness is defining. And we're going to look at the story, the rather funny story actually, that we just read from from the book of 1 Samuel. Because our sermons over the last few weeks have looked at King David, not David Clegg, many of you know, but King David from the Old Testament. And these sermons are to help us to prepare for Christmas because actually David crops up in all the carols and all the readings, like the famous one in in Luke 2. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born. Or, 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 O come, thou key of David, we sang it this morning, and O come, O come, Emmanuel. Uh, A little town of Bethlehem, Jesse's rod. All these words and phrases that are in the carols and in the readings are all to do with King David his dad, his hometown, his throne. And so it feels like actually to understand Christmas, we have to understand something about David. So by looking at David, my hope is that when we arrive to Christmas, we'll see something fresh about Jesus. So that's why we've been looking at King David. And all of this, of course, is in the context of the fact that there's a new king in town in a very sort of particular way for us in terms of King Charles. And that brings questions of what it means to use power and use power well. What are we really hoping for in this world? And it is hard work going back into the Old Testament and reading stories, going back into the Iron Age. It's a really weird world and a strange world and different from us. But the good news news is, and what I'm saying, is that the stories of David kind of gallop forward via Jesus to us. These stories jump forward to our lives because Jesus picks up these stories, the story of David. And then Jesus poured his spirit on the church and, and the church in thinking and reflecting on who David is, we'll get new courage and new faith for what our task is to do together. So that's why we're looking at this. Let me just remind you, before we talk a bit about the story that that Lydia just read, uh, let me just remind you the context. The people of God have had an experiment with having a king. Samuel said it's a bad idea, but they did it anyway. And they said, well, if we're going to have a king, let's pick an obvious character, Saul. He's got all the qualifications. He looks right. So Saul's going to be the king. But he lets them down, just like Samuel said. And so God says, I found a better king because this king is after my own heart. But Samuel's not prepared because he doesn't look the part. So they go to an obscure place, to a nowhere town, and find a nobody person. Because he's so young, his name in the scriptures is the runt. So they go for all the impressive sons of this family until they they come to one who isn't even there because he's got the worst job looking after the sheep on the hillside. And so he's a nowhere person from a nowhere town. And God says that's the one. 
And he's always already told Samuel, I'm looking for one who's after my heart. I do not look at the things that others look at. I do not look at the appearance, but I look at the heart. And David's heart is for God. And so he's a better king than Saul. But there's a big gap between that moment where Samuel picks up the jar of special oil, would have smelled like, you know, La Labo or some incredibly bougie perfume all over, all over David. The, the little kid in the family stinks in the special oil. He's apparently going to be king. Wow, what happens next? Well, it's actually years and years and years, maybe about 16 years before David becomes king. Strange thing happens, though, is that he gets employed by the current king. The current king has, is afflicted by an evil spirit. It's full of this sort of rage and depression. And he wants someone to play music. And someone says, I know someone who can play music. There's this kid called David. So David, knowing that he's been anointed the future king of Israel, now gets into the service employed by the king and starts playing his lyre, I think, lyre, the little harpy thing, which was about last week. And Saul loves it, but a problem. David starts doing extra things. Like he takes on Goliath and has other victories and Saul has a fragile ego and gets seriously jealous. David pops that bit in Saul that can't deal with any competition. And so Saul tries to kill David. Now you might have a bad boss, you may have had a terrible working experience, but I doubt your boss has tried to kill you and that's David's experience. And on the third time that Saul tries to kill him, he just does a runner out of a window actually and runs into the wilderness. Now, he's in the wilderness for about 10 years in this story. And he's like the, the king that's full of promise and, and has been anointed. But his reality is wilderness. His reality is the barren lands of Judea. He's like um, Strider in Lord of the Rings before he's Aragorn. I can't resist Lord of the Rings. I've really got to get beyond it, but I can't quite do it. Anyway, if you lay Lord of the Rings, he's like, he's like Strider. He's the anointed king, but he's not yet been appointed. And in this time of wilderness, it's when we get some of the best and, and many of the Psalms attributed to David. So the poems in the Bible, this is when David's writing most of the ones attributed to him. And then these strange stories, like the one we heard today happen, where they're hiding in the cave from Saul, and then Saul comes in to take a, a time by himself. And they're like, you can do it. You can kill him. This is your moment. This is the moment. And we know from the Psalms that, that David's heart is full of hate towards Saul. You know, he's had to be, he's run into the wilderness to escape this man. And his rage and anger is, is a natural consequence. And here's the moment to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He doesn't not actually because he's feeling particularly merciful, but if you read the story, it's because his determination to honour God points him towards a merciful action rather than a natural feeling of, of compassion and mercy. And so David does not kill Saul. He honours God. The environment of all of this is the wilderness. The environment for David waiting to be appointed king is the wilderness. And what we do in the wilderness, as I said, matters. What we choose in the waiting is transformative. Wilderness was the environment of escape for David. It wasn't something he chose. He just did a runner. But it was also an environment that he had to wait. And by the wilderness, as I said, I really just mean it's the wild place. 
The wilderness in the land of the Bible is almost always desert. It's quite hard for us to imagine, particularly on a day like today. You know, the, the highlands or something, or Dartmoor, that makes sense to us. But at a time when, when, a place where there's just heat and, and barrenness, just think back to July. <laughs> that will help you. Do you remember the savannah of Victoria Park when all the green went? It's like that, but, but, but more, but worse. No shade, a sun that will kill you, wild animals that will also kill you, an environment where life doesn't happen. I've been there, this exact spot. It's incredibly barren. A wilderness moment, a wilderness season is a shift to a harsh and barren environment from comfort to discomfort. And in the Bible, these are literal places. But even within the Bible's world, those literal places become a picture, a metaphor in the scriptures for how life can feel that way sometimes. When we're shunted and kicked out into a harsh and barren environment, maybe something just ended, something just finished, a relationship, a job, maybe a sudden intrusion of something that's harsh and barren like a diagnosis. And the strange thing, though, is that these are the places where almost more than anywhere else people encounter God. What happens in wilderness in the scriptures are some of the most profound personal and plot changes. It's where Abraham wanders to find the new land, where Moses sees the burning bush. It's where the people wander for 40 days to get slavery out of them to become ready to inherit the promised land. It's where Hagar is expelled and then receives the God of compassion and mercy that sees and hears her. And the church, at the beginning, trying to follow God, the, the desert mothers and fathers left the comfort and chose the wilderness because they looked back to the scriptures and said, where God acts most seems to be the desert. So let's go to the, the desert. And Mary did her final fashion show uh, on the desert mothers and fathers. So ask Mary for more information about such things. The wilderness is a harsh and barren environment, and it's not good on in itself, but what God does there is special. The wilderness is not punishment necessarily, but it's a promise from God of making you into more that you are than you are. What you choose, though, matters. What you choose in the waiting is transformative, and what happens in the wilderness is defining. I'm just going to show you two things that happen in the wilderness, in, in the life of David and then John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist is kind of like the pinup guy for uh, Advent. He gets a lot of airtime in Advent, uh, and he's the one that he's, well, he's Jesus' cousin. So Jesus' uh, aunt, Elizabeth, becomes pregnant first. And John basically is the one that points everyone's attention to see Jesus. And he does this by going to the wilderness. There's a verse going to come up from Mark 1. Yes, there you see, it says of John the Baptist that he'll be a messenger that will go ahead of Jesus and he'll prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So these two things that I just want to say, what happens in David, what happens for John, and then maybe what happens for us. The two things are firstly, in the wilderness we are formed, and secondly, from the wilderness we are sent. So firstly, in the wilderness we are formed. For David, in the wilderness is when he starts to act like a king. It's when he starts to act like a king. You see, 
Think about King Saul in that cave. He's a man who has all the power. He's king. And he started to abuse his power. Now David, for just a moment, has power. He sees a way that he can take revenge, the way that he can murder King Saul. But he chooses mercy. He chooses restraint. In this moment, David becomes more kingly than Saul to use power with restraint. In the desert, David is formed to to tune his heart and his affections towards God's ways. And John the Baptist chose the desert. He chose the wilderness. See, David was expelled, was pushed. He didn't choose the wilderness. He just escaped. He went in stress and in pain and in, in torment of being, you know, my boss is trying to kill me. But John chose And some deserts are chosen. And that's what Advent is like. The church intentionally chooses a time that feels a bit like a wilderness because we want to be formed. We want to follow God in the middle of this world. It's hard to imagine God's kingdom breaking into a place like this. So we have to make intentional choices to be formed, to become people that can choose God and know God. And so we choose a wilderness. John chose the wilderness. John went to the wilderness to be a voice crying. Secondly, well, just before I say that, John in the wilderness chose to be formed because he wanted to choose God. And John became a voice, not an echo. Now, around us, everything feels to me like an echo at the moment, where people and ideas just go round and round and round in circles. But it was in the wilderness that John became a voice, not an echo. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, because the people were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a time when God would come and put things right but they were trying to do it in their own way. Some had had made allegiances with the political power. Some were trying to be perfect in the law. But John called the people to seek God. He had something to say, and it says the whole of the Judean area came to see him. He became a voice, not an echo. He had something to say because he went to the wilderness. It stripped him back to an essential heart cry for God, and people heard that and responded. In the desert, we are formed. It's where David began to act like a king. And it's where John became a voice, not an echo. And for us, we're just like David, watch out for the tests in the, in the wilderness of life. The choices that suddenly come to have a shortcut. You know, if David had killed Saul in that moment, he would have become king, but he would have become king in the right way. And in the wilderness, there are tests to do things our way or to do things God's way. There are tests that will come up, but there are also choices to make, to choose an advent. A simple advent, if you're like, what does that actually mean? What do I actually do? Well, think about fasting, whether that's food or alcohol or TV or something. A great advent thing to do that the church has been doing for like 1,500 years is to fast something, to create space, to choose a little wilderness. You know, I fast not as much as I'd like to, but, but I've never found it easy. I don't think I ever will. <laughs> you don't actually, for me, I'm not sure I'll ever get better at it. But what it does is it creates a very visceral sense of dependence on God as I become aware of my own fragile body. 
Same things happened when I got hit by a car riding my bike. That's not a very nice way to experience the reality that fasting simply brings you. Is that you're a fragile human being. You need God. The wilderness forms us. Be prepared for the tests that, that come up against your life where you have to make a choice to do things God's way or to do things your way. And make choices that lead you into a wilderness that means you can choose God. And in that choosing, we become a voice, not an echo. So in the wilderness, we are formed. And secondly, from the wilderness, we are sent. See, the wilderness is not forever. And, and the great mistake a great mistake is to think that the current situations are what they will always be. You see, from the desert, King David was sent to victory and to rule. And from the desert, John preached his best sermons. And do you know who came? Jesus, if you read on the story, to get baptized. And from the wilderness, Jesus was sent to a new wilderness. That's where Jesus had his 40 days in the wilderness. And then from the wilderness, he was sent with the message about the kingdom of God for three years of ministry. He was sent from the wilderness. Don't get used to the circumstances that are harsh and barren and think that God has that for you forever. These seasons, these moments, whether it's financially, relationally, in terms of your career, they come and, and in them there are tests and in them there are choices. But the other side... There's stuff to do. Don't get too used to the wilderness. Don't set up a permanent residence. So just uh, three things then. If that's what's going on in the wilderness, we are being formed and then we will be sent. Just three little things that I want us to think about that we can do. First and, firstly, listen in the night. This summer, our daughter, Evangeline, she's two, she suddenly became aware of dark. She somehow missed it until we were in Greece on holiday. And then she started to realize each day at a certain period, it was, the light kind of goes and the sun disappears and then it's dark. And whenever it got dark, and I can't really remember where she learned this, but she still does it today. Um, when it gets dark, she goes, shh, dark. Shh. Absolutely fascinating. The way she goes quiet. And when we were in Greece at the beginning, she went, shh, dark. And we'd go out to the veranda, and there'd be silence. And there'd be like, mm, 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 mm. it'd be a bike. She'd be like, bike! <laughs> shh, dark. And then, car! <laughs> and she would listen, 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 listen. And then she would see little things, and she would comment on, in the darkness, the wilderness goes to, like, max volume. I remember being, going to Wadi Rum, which is in the Jordanian desert, and staying the night there. And the silence is so extreme. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you start to hear ringing in your ear because the ear isn't actually designed for pure silence. But in the wilderness, when there's nothing there at night, there really is silence. And what the wilderness gives you is an opportunity to really listen. Really listen. When you choose something like fasting or, or, or to come at 7.30 in the morning to pray at church, you're choosing a wilderness that allows you to really listen. For you to become a voice rather than just an echo, you have to listen to God. Shh. We've got to find a way to listen, to slow down. I don't know what it will be for you this Christmas, but if you don't choose it, 
Think about everything that's going to happen, or everything that's already in the diary, all the activity. So how can you choose to shush yourself, to still yourself, to silence yourself, to listen deeply through scripture, through community, to God? Don't fight the wilderness. Find shade. Well, it's not really shade for us, is it? (laughs) Find some warmth. Get out of the highlands. Get off the moor. Find a warm fire and be still and listen. So firstly, listen to the night. Secondly, cry out in the day. See, David wrote all his killer psalms at this time. He created and expressed himself. John the Baptist said all his killer lines in the wilderness. He became a voice, not an echo, crying in the wilderness. And he was ready to see Jesus. So as it says in John's gospel, when he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Cry out in the day. When was the last time God really heard your cry? The wilderness creates a cry in us, a longing for God. Time and space to really reflect on the fact that this world is full of beauty, but overflowing with brokenness. And we long for Jesus to return at the end of time, to put all things right, but we will not wait without expecting God to move here and now. We wait in a way that says, yes, God, one day, put it all to right. We know the end of time. We wait and we long for that day, but we also long for you to break into the... When was the last time God heard your heart cry? Listen in the night and cry out in the day. I was reflecting on this amazing ability that in the middle of that chaos, David created these psalms. We always look for a perfect moment to, you know, whatever you do, whether you, you make bake bread, maybe you write poems, maybe you make clothes, whatever you do, we're always looking for a perfect moment to give our best contribution, to write our very best document, to organise our best meeting, whatever you do, whatever you create in your life. But actually the circumstances of the wilderness force out of us a cry and and an explosion of what we have to offer. Incredibly fertile and abundant times. The job is, is is, is to perceive and to look what's beyond the here and now. To allow the barrenness and the dryness of the wilderness to call a cry out of you. Isaiah talks about it like this. I think we've got the verse. Isaiah 43, 19. Isaiah looks out on the wilderness and says, and hears God say, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wilderness causes us to perceive God bringing new life like streams. The wilderness causes us to long and to pray and to prophesy and to hope for more. And out of that, we make our best heart, our best arms, our bake our best bread. Listen in the night, cry out in the day, and lastly, feast. There's strange food in the wilderness. It says, um, the people that gathered around David are all those in distress or in debt or discontented. All the people of Israel, all the rejects and the nobodies, those who were in distress, in debt, or discontented, they gathered around David. And if you follow the stories through, they became friends, they became a company. It sounds a lot like church when I read those stories. David created a community 
in the wilderness. The people of God fed on manna, miraculous food. And so I look around and I look at even this church. I think, well, I love this church, but I long for so much more. I long for God to do more. I, I, I cry out for more. I perceive God moving in bow like streams in the wasteland. I try to create space to listen to what God is saying and then cry out for more. But I feast on what there already is. And the best part of my job is that I get to see all the little stories. You know, we're three services on a Sunday. We're spread out across different groups, meeting, doing different things. And many of you won't get to see half of what I get to see, or really, like, I don't know, like a tiny percent. You have a tiny... I, I actually get to see, obviously, all the bad stuff as well, but all the amazing things that God is doing. You know, just this week, people finding faith for the very first time. Individuals who've never believed in Jesus, discovering who Jesus is. Someone from no background of faith whatsoever who wants to be baptised at great cost to themselves. On Wednesday, did the funeral of, of, of Regina, who used to come to this, this church, her and her daughter, Oksana, started coming when Regina was very ill. I've sat with, with Regina as she's died, and she died with a smile on her face, amazingly. As the peace of God entered that room, her long battle with cancer was over. And this Wednesday, we as a church in this room stood here. I'm a, I am standing where her coffin was. And we were able to say goodbye to someone and celebrate the amazing daughter Oksana has been to Regina and welcome the fact that her life is now hidden in Christ and she is at peace and there is no cancer. We got to do that as a church. We've been trying to start a family service it's taken a while, and we're starting from zero, and every, everything from zero to one is the hardest. And it's small, like a lot of things in this church, but it's alive. Our daughter Evangeline refuses to wear anything but a white party dress because she calls the service church party. She loves it so much, and she enjoys it so much, she calls it church party. We only started in September, but all the features of the service, the liturgy with the actions, she already knows them. So before Katie's even got it out of her mouth, she's doing this, she's doing that. We do a thank you stop with the microphone. Evangeline's just up before Katie's even got the microphone out to say thank you. What was it this morning she said thank you for? Stories. Thank you for stories. The dream is that young lives in Bow would look at church and be like, I want to go to party church. That's amazing. That's incredible. There's more. But God is alive. It says in the Bible, do not despise the day of small beginnings. The things in your life where you see God at work, the streams in the wilderness might feel insignificant. But don't mistake it for something else but God's work at hand. The choice we have in the wilderness is to feast on unlikely food. Make sure you eat well. When the people of God stop eating the manna, it all goes wrong. God will provide in the wilderness uncommon and unlikely food, the strange company of friends, the distressed, the disconnected, those in debt for David. There'll be little things that God gives you. So we should wrap up. I don't know what the wilderness feels for you right now. Your life might feel really fine. I would say take this to heart, though. Because life won't always be fine. As well as all the good things, I've sat with people with, with recent diagnosis and pain and all sorts of terrible things happen in life that feel like a wilderness, a barren and a dark place. So take this stuff to heart that you'll be ready when a, a big wilderness comes your way. But also if life is fine, then this is a moment to choose the wilderness, to go to the quiet places and the still places to shh, 
yourself and be with John, fasting and waiting and listening to God. I don't know for some of us, though, if it feels like, actually, no, this makes perfect sense. This part of life or the whole of life feels like a massive wilderness right now. Make sure you feast. Be aware of the tests. Every choice worshipping God will not be wasted. What needs to come out of you as a cry in this time? As he's been forming you, what now needs to come out of you? What art do you need to make? What songs do you need to sing? What do you need to do in this wilderness time? How can we choose to listen together? How can we go further in to the story of God together? This is a moment, I think, of profound opportunity. Whenever God is here, it's always profound opportunity. But I feel for the church at the moment, this is a time of profound opportunity where the wilderness tests us to believe that God might be absent or he might be coming. And in the waiting, we are formed. In the wilderness, we are transformed. Would you stand?